is the parable of the tax collector and uh, the Pharisee. And it's a very familiar parable. Um, it relates to the issue of righteousness, particularly the issue of self-righteousness, which um, we're all pretty much given to self-righteousness, um, uh, making our uh, case and building our status and our reputation before God and men. Uh, I wanted to move ahead because I thought chapter 19, the parable in chapter 19, might be a good place to end and, and uh, anticipate Dr. Young's return on Wednesday night. And prior to doing that, I got in here a little late, so I don't know if anything was said. I know that um, um, there at the end, the situation in Mississippi and Louisiana was alluded to. And uh, uh, Brent, that is you back there, isn't it? Brent's not back there? Okay. You know, without my glasses, I wasn't sure. Um, but um, there's going to be an announcement go out on Grace Online. And I don't, the reason why I wanted to check Brent was back there is I think Brent's going to formulate the announcement that's going to go out. But Grace is looking for a way to partner. And you may know this already, but Grace is looking for a way to partner to uh, help um, show the gospel in very tangible, practical ways to those who are in need in Louisiana and Mississippi. So if you subscribe to Grace Online, please uh, look at that. don't know if it's going to make it out tonight or not. There's still some details that are being uh, formulated, and uh, but uh, it's already there. Great, okay. Um, but you might want to be aware of that and uh, and pay attention to that and how we can participate. Okay, Luke uh, chapter 19. Some of you may be Tolkien fans. Some of you may have seen the uh, Lord of the Rings series. Anybody see those uh, those movies? Um, for three, I think for three successive uh, Christmases, beginning in. Uh, um, what, 01, I think. Um, they started coming out. The last one, Return of the King, December 2003. Another blockbuster epic that celebrated and anticipated the return of Aragon and his reclaiming the land that had been usurped. Well, this parable anticipates a greater king, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And this delay between the consummation of the kingdom and the return of the king but this particular parable, in many places in the New Testament and even in the Old Testament, anticipate uh, the return of Christ as King and the inauguration of an eternal kingdom in which God is found to be all-glorious and in and among His people. Uh, chapter 19 of Luke's Gospel turns our attention to this King of kings and Lord of lords who will come back someday in power, consummate the kingdom, and establish a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness will dwell. The context of this parable, like all the other parables, is really important because it determines the meaning and the application of the parable. Um, and I want to give you kind of a bigger picture of Luke's gospel, if I could, for just a few minutes, and then give you the immediate context of the parable. Starting in Luke chapter 9, and if you'll hold your place in Luke 19 and turn back to chapter 9 for just a minute. Starting in Luke uh, chapter 9... Jesus begins to head to Jerusalem. And from Luke chapter 9 all the way to the end of Luke chapter 19 is a section of Luke's gospel that's called the travel narrative because all of this takes place with Jesus on the road steadily moving toward Jerusalem. He knew exactly why he was going to Jerusalem. He knew why he came. And so in this intervening period from Luke 9... To Luke chapter 19, Jesus steadily moving towards Jerusalem. We've looked at all these parables that take place in this section. 
The only parable that is outside this section that we considered was the first one, and that's uh, the, the parable of the soils, sower sows the seed, and so on. But there's a turning of events that takes place in Luke chapter 9. Since it's my last Wednesday night, I just wanted to share this with you and give you kind of a big uh, sweep of events here. But in Luke chapter 9, several things take place. One, for example, uh, is the momentous confession of the Apostle Peter, Luke 9, 18. And it happened as he was alone praying that his disciples joined him. And he asked them, saying, Who do the crowds say that I am? In verse 19, they answered and said, uh, John the Baptist, but some say Elijah, and others say that one of the old prophets has risen again. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter, of course, um, speaks up and says, uh, The Christ of God. We're more familiar with the Matthew 16 reference where Peter says that you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus then pronounces a benediction upon Peter for his confession and promises to give him the keys of the kingdom. But this is a, this is a big event here because now there's some in this context of disciples who own and recognize and publicly confess that Jesus Christ uh, is the Messiah, Israel's long-promised Redeemer. Immediately after this, Jesus goes up on a mountain. In verse 28, it came to pass about eight days after these sayings that he took Peter, James, and John and went up on a mountain to pray. And as he prayed, the appearance of his face was altered, and his robe became white and glistening. And behold, two men talked with him. And look at who the two men were. They were Moses and Elijah. One representing the law, the other representing the prophets, are appearing to Jesus on this Mount of Transfiguration. They're talking with him, and notice in verse 31 what they're discussing. They appeared, who appeared in glory, and spoke of his decease, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. If I'm not mistaken here, the word in the Greek text, not that it's tremendously important, but is the word exodus. The word exodus. Moses had led God's people out of Egypt in the power of God. And there's a book that chronicles this. And what is it called? Second book of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus. And here's Moses now, um, a thousand years after his death, has appeared with Christ along with Elijah, a prophet, on the Mount of Transfiguration. And they're discussing another exodus by which Christ would lead his people to a greater redemption and out of a far greater bondage, the bondage of sin and death and misery and heartache. Two big events, the confession of Christ by Peter, the Mount of Transfiguration, and then the third thing that happens that's a big event in this chapter, and this kind of gives you the bigger context for what we're going to look at tonight. Go all the way down now to verse 51, Luke 9:51. Now it came to pass when the time had come for him to be received up that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem and sent messengers before his face. There's a turning now from the ministry of Jesus in Judea and Galilee. Now he begins to go to Jerusalem. And from this point on all the way up through the parable that we're going to read this evening, um, we've got this travelogue in which Jesus is telling us parables. And all the parables that we've looked at this summer, and this is the 13th parable we've looked at this summer, in all these parables, there are three things that have been said about the kingdom of God. What has been described is the beginning of the kingdom. It's like a sower sowing seed. 
what has been described is the expanse and the growth of the kingdom. The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed that grows into a great tree. The kingdom of God is like leaven placed in a barrel of meal and it transforms that barrel of meal. We've also talked about the consummation of the kingdom. When the king comes back, what will it be like and what will it look like? Well, turn back to Luke chapter 19. Jesus is going to describe for us this evening in this, uh, this parable in the 19th chapter of Luke's gospel about an interval, this long delay, this time period between his first and second coming and what we're to be involved in. In Luke chapter 19, Jesus in verse 1 is passing through Jericho. Uh, there was a certain man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and he was rich. And he came to a saving knowledge of Christ. And the reason we know that Zacchaeus came to a saving knowledge of Christ is because of the evidence of repentance and restitution in verse, um, in verse 8. Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, I give half my goods to the poor, and if I've taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I restore fourfold. One of the marks of repentance is honest confession, not the pleading of excuses, but honest confession that's evidenced and marked by restitution. A, a, you could uh, read more about this, 2 Corinthians uh, 7, for example. Paul describes a repentance that is false. It is a godly sorrow. It is a remorse over consequences and exposure versus a true repentance that has a sense of sin, a conviction of sin, and a desire to own up to the sin and to make what men's are necessary. So you have a guy that's come to faith in Christ, and then as a result of this, look at verse 11. There were some, because they know he's going to Jerusalem, who anticipated that the kingdom of God would appear immediately. And they were looking for an earthly kingdom. They were looking for a kingdom that would liberate them from Roman rule and bondage, that they would once again be restored to the glory of David's, uh, David's reign. And they wondered if this could be the king. And so in the context of Zacchaeus coming to faith in Christ, Jesus now just a few days from going into Jerusalem on what we call Palm Sunday, his triumphant entry, this man coming to faith in Christ, there's this expectation that when Jesus comes to Jerusalem, there's going to be the inauguration of the kingdom of God and things are going to be put right with Israel and in the world. And so Jesus then tells this parable. And this is the parable we'll consider for a few minutes. Verse 12, Therefore, he said, Jesus said, a certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. So he called ten of his servants, delivered to them ten minas, and said to them, Do business till I come. Or uh, the old uh, King James Version says, Occupy till I come. But his citizens, in verse 14, hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We will not have this man to reign over us. And so it was when he had returned, having received the kingdom, he then commanded these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know how much every man had gained by trading. Then came the first in verse 16, saying, Master, your mina has earned ten minas. And he said to him, Well done, good servant, because you were faithful in very little, have authority over ten cities. In verse 18, the second came, saying, Master, your mina has earned five minas. Likewise, he said to him, you also be over five cities. Then in verse 20, another came saying, Master, here is your mina, which I've kept put away in a handkerchief. For I feared you because you're an austere man, 
You collect what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. And he said to him, out of your own mouth, I will judge you, you wicked servant. You know, you knew that I was an austere man collecting what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank that at my coming I might have collected it with interest? And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to him who has ten minas. But they said to him, Master, he has ten minas. For I say to you that everyone, that to everyone who has will be given, and from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. But bring here those enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them and slay them before me. Let me see if I the lengthy parable. I'm going to summarize it in two main points. And the first point simply is this, that in this parable of this nobleman who goes to a far country to receive a kingdom and eventually come back, you and I are looking at this time period between the first coming of Christ, His incarnation, His crucifixion, His resurrection, and His ascension, and when He comes back again at the end of the age, we're looking at this long interval of time now nudging close to 2,000 years. This long interval of time, and here's the first observation from the text, presents us with a day of opportunity. It presents us with a day of opportunity. We're in a season in which Christ, out of His amazing grace and His amazing goodness, has delayed His return for saving ends and saving purposes. Our Lord's kingdom, the kingdom that He inaugurated when He came, is not a kingdom that's measured by earthly uh, measurements of status and success and, and all the things that we would use to evaluate the kingdom of God are, are unimportant. They're, they're negligible because in this long interval period of time, God is pouring out His grace, He's pouring out His mercy, and He's bringing people into a saving knowledge of Himself. The delay of the Lord is merciful and it is kind. But in this parable... During this delay um, of our Lord's uh, return and the delay of um, His coming back and setting up His kingdom, there are some who would drift into indifference. There would be some who would diff, uh, drift into a spiritual apathy, if you will, who would uh, consider the delay of the Lord um, uh, to be less than urgent. Um, and, and they would lose their kingdom focus and they would lose their kingdom values and their kingdom interests. But the promise remains in verse 12. The promise of the king's return. A certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. We believe that the Bible teaches that this king, our Lord Jesus Christ, will someday return. There are 27 books in the New Testament and 25 of them state explicitly that Christ is coming again. Some books, like 1 Thessalonians, for example, every chapter closes with the promise of Christ's return. We're living in this long period in which there's a day of opportunity for the gospel to be proclaimed, for saving grace to be poured out upon the nations of the world. But someday, time will be no more, and the king will come back, and there will be an opportunity then to be summoned before the king and to give an account. It's not unusual in those days for a, a vassal of the Roman Empire to go to Rome and to be conferred a status and a title 
and to come back and reign. That's the case with Pilate. That's the case with uh, Herod. That's the case with some of the other figures that you'll see in first century uh, uh, Jerusalem or first century Palestine. They went to Rome. They received a kingdom. You know, the Bible says the same thing about Jesus, that after his crucifixion, his resurrection and ascension, he went to receive a kingdom. Hold your place here for just a minute and turn with me to uh, Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7. I, I think Dr. Young this fall is going to be in, uh, in Daniel. Um, I have reasons to believe that. Um, Daniel chapter 7. Um, and you could start at about, um, well, start at verse 9. Daniel 7 verse 9. Daniel says, I, I watched till thrones were put in place and the Ancient of Days was seated. His garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth before him. A thousand thousands ministered to him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated, and the books were opened. And then go down to verse 13. I was watching in the night seasons, and behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given a dominion and glory in the kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed. This is the kingdom of our Lord and our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. He ascended to heaven. He was given a kingdom. He is ruling and reigning over his people over you and over me and people from every language and every tribe on this planet by His Word and by His Spirit. And His gospel is being proclaimed not only in word ministry such as took place in, in uh, Guatemala, but also in deed ministry as uh, took place in the Czech Republic and Hungary. And I think Dr. Young was to speak something like 11 times over the air, over there. And the gospel is being shared all around the world even as our Lord is ruling and reigning in this great kingdom. Uh, Paul, when he wrote the church at Ephesus and said that Christ had been resurrected and that he had been uh, given a, uh, a name that's above every name, he has been enthroned above every principality and above every power, we're not waiting for Jesus to reign. Jesus is reigning now. But we're in this long interval period in which he is absent. We walk by faith and someday we'll behold Him by sight. But He's given the people who are called by His name a kingdom responsibility and a kingdom ministry. And this is the day of opportunity. This is the day in which uh, you and I have been given enormous privileges and enormous resources so that we would invest those in the kingdom of God. Um, Turn back to Luke chapter 19 um, and let's pick back up there for just a minute. If you could imagine this 2,000-year period now, the whole purpose, the whole purpose of this interval is so that all of those whom the Father has given the Son, John 17, all those whom the Father has given the Son will be brought to saving faith and repentance through the gospel proclaimed and applied in the power of the Holy Spirit. There are numerous places that we could turn, but we don't have the time. And uh, Wednesday nights is probably not a good time to take a travelogue through the Scripture. But there are numerous places we could turn. For example, 
John chapter 6. What a powerful passage John chapter 6 is. And it, John 6.37, Jesus says to this multitude, whom at the end of this sermon is going to walk away from him, he says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. How many will come to Jesus? Someone. All. All that the Father gives him will come to him. And he will not cast out any of them. And at the last day, he says, I will raise them up. We're in this long interval in which the church's mission focus and ministry focus is the gathering of God's people through the preaching and the application and the sharing of the gospel. Um, Like Dr. Young, I'm ordained in the Presbyterian Church of America. And there are certain doctrinal standards that we have affirmed that we would embrace and that we would support. And one of those doctrinal standards is called the Westminster Confession of Faith. Anybody ever heard of the Westminster Confession of Faith? In chapter 25 of the Westminster Confession of Faith, scintillating reading. Chapter 25, section 3, it says that God has given His church, that's us, He's given His church oracles, the Word of God, He's given us ordinances, baptism, the Lord's Supper, And He's given us ministers for this one end and aim. This is it, folks, that we might gather and equip or perfect His saints, His people. That's why the church exists. We want to make it exist for a whole lot of other reasons. But it primarily exists for one end, and that is through the message of the gospel applied by the power of the Holy Spirit that God will bring people to a saving knowledge of Himself. I want to make it more about me meeting my needs and serving my ends and interests. But I can tell you at the end of the summer now, after 13 weeks, I can tell you that's not why the church exists. It's to serve me and to meet my needs. The church exists to serve the needs and the interests of God and the purpose that He's ordained it. And He has given us grace upon grace and the gospel and a storehouse of gifts and graces that you and I might participate in this great end together. The purpose then in this inter-advent period while we await the return of our King is to gather God's people through the proclamation of the gospel in various ways. In this parable in Luke 19, resources are given here, a provision of resources, and it's used in the terms of coinage of the day. You know, we might use dollars, but um, the, the term that they would use there... What's the currency over there? Dennis going to put you on the spot. Okay. We'll take your word for that. Uh, here in Luke 19, it's minas or minas. Depends on where you're from, whether, what you do with that eye there. Make it a long or short one. Um, it's roughly three, three and a half months wages. Three and a half months' wages. Ten servants called, every servant given three and a half months' wages, while this nobleman goes to the far country to receive this kingdom. And they were to employ and invest these resources for some great end, for the master's end. The resources that the Lord has given to us and entrusted to us is so that we might employ them and use them ultimately for His honor, His glory and for kingdom gain in advance. Several Wednesday nights ago, I don't remember exactly when, but I had us turn over to Deuteronomy chapter 8, and 
God's people are about ready to go into the promised land and he says, you're going to live in houses you didn't build. You're going to eat from vineyards you didn't plant. And just remember this, that I've given you the power to get wealth so that my covenant might be established. So that my covenant might be established. God has poured out His grace and His goodness on us so that we might use the resources that He's given to us, employed in wise kingdom-building ends, to the praise of His glory, not to the praise of our glory. Perhaps the greatest resources that, that the greatest resource that God has entrusted to His people is the gospel. The good news, the bad news, first, you're lost. The good news is. There's a Savior, and His name is Jesus. And you can embrace Him, and you can come to Him, whosoever will. The greatest resource that God's invested in the church is the message of the gospel. It is, Romans 1.16, Paul says, the power of God unto salvation. I know Jonathan Todd teaches a Sunday school class on Sunday mornings. Are you still in uh, Timothy? Still in Timothy 1? Okay, uh, sixth chapter. Are you going to Second Timothy? You're not? Okay. All right. In 2 Timothy, this is Paul's last letter. And he's writing to his son in the faith, Timothy. And he's warning him about hardships, uh, opposition that he would face within those who profess faith in Christ, opposition without from those who don't profess faith in Christ. And uh, one of the things that Paul says to Timothy in chapter 1 of 2 Timothy is, Timothy, guard the deposit. Guard the deposit. Keep as a sacred trust that word that's been committed unto you. The, listen, the church in every generation has a responsibility to hold as a sacred deposit the truth of God's word. To hold as a sacred deposit the truth of the gospel. Because it's by the gospel that you and I come to a saving knowledge of Christ. And when we water down the gospel, when we blunt the force of repentance, and when we make the, the audience the determiner of the message, as opposed to preaching and sharing and teaching and communicating the truth of God before a sense of accountability, when we tinker with that, we err greatly. We err greatly. The greatest treasure, the greatest resource God's committed to His people it's what you're holding in your hands this evening. The truth of God and the truth about God. And so we invest in the ministry of the gospel, word ministry, deed ministry, and so on. We use all these resources in the power of God's Spirit to advance and enlarge the kingdom of God. Paul, in writing the church at Corinth in his first letter, said that he planted, Apollos watered, but anybody who gave the increase? God gave the increase. Paul says, I employed the resources that God gave me. Apollos employed the resources that God gave him. But it was God who gave the increase that God alone might be honored and glorified. Today is a present day of opportunity for all of us. We don't know when the day of opportunity is going to end. I remember in 19, 1988, a book came out called 88 Reasons Why Christ is Coming Back in 1988. I still have that book on my bookshelf. Uh, there was a sequel to it. 
Anybody want to guess what the name of the sequel was? 89 reasons why Christ is coming. This is honest truth. There was a sequel to it. I don't have the sequel. I don't think it sold nearly as many copies. Um, but this guy was a former NASA engineer, and he calculated, you know, the date and the Jewish calendar, uh, Yom Kippur, Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year, and, and all this kind of thing. He had narrowed it down to about a week, September of 1988, that Christ was coming back. There's a problem with date setting. There's a huge problem with date setting. We don't know how long the day of opportunity is going to last. I don't know how long the day of opportunity is going to last for me. But the Bible is unmistakably clear about this. Time will come to an end. And the present day of opportunity, here's the second observation from the passage, will eventuate in a future day of accountability. Notice in the text, the king did come back. He did return and he gathers and rewards his servants in verses 15 to 22. The first servant to whom he had given the ten minas is called and is called to accountability in verses 16 and 17, and the reward is given for faithfulness. The second servant in verses 18 and 19, to whom he had given five minas, is called to accountability and rewarded for his faithfulness. Then there's another servant in verses 20 to 26 who is called to accountability, and he's not really a true servant. And the reason why I say that is because he's called a wicked servant. He took what had been given to him and did not employ it or invest it. And on this future day of accountability comes up short. And there are several things you, that you ought to be aware of when you read or hear this kind of thing. And just very quickly, one of the things that you need to recognize here is that not everyone who professes faith possesses faith. Not everyone who professes faith possesses faith. Judas would be a prime example of that, wouldn't he? In the apostolic band for three and a half years, a delegated responsibility, a treasurer of the ministry, so to speak, and yet he was the son of perdition. Here's one who had the outward markings of a servant, but is called wicked in verse 22. In a kind of a parallel sense, Jesus tells the, the parable of the, uh, the ten virgins in Matthew 25. Five were wise and five were what? Foolish. Five wise, five foolish. You know, you couldn't tell any difference between them until the bridegroom came back. And when the bridegroom came back, it was apparent that some were prepared and some weren't. This coming day of accountability will distinguish between true servants and false servants. There is in this parable an accountability that's followed by reward. There seems to be a connection between faithfulness now and reward when the king comes. And um, some of our grace groups are going to be using uh, Randy Alcorn's book, Heaven and In Light of Eternity. Anybody here going to be using that book in your grace group? Um, one of the things that Randy Alcorn in that book talks about is the concept of rewards. And we're running a little late here and I don't have time to go into it, but I can tell you this, that there is a sense in which kingdom faithfulness now and employing the resources faithfully with an eye toward eternity will be recognized and honored on a coming day. Not only does that teach, not only is that taught in this parable, but numerous passages would teach the same thing. Now, if you're tracking with me this evening, does this idea of future 
rewards for present faithfulness diminish salvation by grace? No, it does not. You and I are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in whom alone? Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. But there is a sense in which having been saved, having been brought into the fellowship of the triune God and been given these resources, we're to use and employ the resources that He's given to us with a sense of ultimate accountability. Let me just throw out some references. We won't turn to them, but uh, you get a sense of that in uh, 1 Corinthians 3 where Paul talks about a coming day of accountability. You get a sense of that in uh, 2 Corinthians uh, 4 toward the end of that chapter about an eternal weight of glory. And therefore, we make it our aim now to be well-pleasing to the Lord. You get a sense of that in 2 Corinthians 5.14 where the love of Christ motivates us, compels us, constrains us even now. And... Uh, Barring the Lord's return, Dr. Young's eventually going to get to Romans chapter 12. Um, he's going to be at the end of chapter 8 here in another week or so. But you've got Romans chapters 1 through 11, the purest exposition of the gospel anywhere in Scripture. But can I tell you what the gospel leads to in chapter 12 of Romans? Paul says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as living sacrifices. This is what the gospel leads to, understood and applied to our lives. It leads to me being a businessman with an eye toward accountability, that the bottom line is not the balance sheet. The bottom line is a coming day of accountability with the Lord. It leads to faithfulness in every arena of life because we've been saved by grace, we live by grace, but we know that someday the king is going to Come back and we're going to stand before Him. And present faithfulness be, will be rewarded and honored in that day. Randy Alcorn gets into this a little bit later in his book, but he, this, I like what he says here. He says, Through adversity and opportunity, as well as artistic and cultural accomplishments, they will be groomed for their leadership roles in Christ's eternal kingdom. Their skills will be used in the new universe where they will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father, all he's saying essentially is this, and I'll summarize what I think the Bible teaches here, is that you and I are going to be joint heirs. We are joint heirs with Christ. And the original promise in Eden, at the first creation of the first man and woman, rule the earth, subdue it, and be fruitful, will again come to fulfillment and accomplishment. When the king comes back, and ushers in a new heavens and a new earth. Heaven is not going to be floating from cloud to cloud and strumming a harp. It's going to be busily engaged to the glory of God. And if I understand the Scriptures correctly, Ephesians 2 says that in the ages to come, throughout the unfolding eras of eternity, we're going to marvel at the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we're going to use the gifts and the graces that the Lord has given to us in a renovated cosmos, free of sin, free of false motives, free of heartache and misery, and written over all of it will be to the glory of God alone. Frankly, right now, I serve Him with mixed motives. 
And I don't know you well enough, but I presume that there are some here like that as well. You find within you this struggle of mixed motivations. We will not have them in the life to come. We will serve the Lord with fervency and consistency and a promptness and a joy and a single eye toward His glory. All of us here this evening have present resources and responsibilities by which we've been called to serve the Lord. Someday, those abilities and resources will be perfected and we will serve Him forever and ever. We cannot come into a state of condemnation. Romans 8.1 There's no condemnation in Christ. We cannot be separated from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. But the outcome of all of that, folks, Romans 12, is great zeal to serve the Lord with joy and to serve Him with gladness and to spare no effort at extending and enlarging His kingdom. There's a retribution, not reward for those who are not the king's servants. This false servant's profession was exposed. And then look at the end of the parable in verse 27. Every rebel will be punished. Those who did not want the king to reign over them will be banished from his presence. But bring here, verse 27, these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them and slay them before me. Paul is writing a troubled and beleaguered church at Thessalonica. And in his second letter he says, When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, he says, These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Present opportunity now will someday culminate in a future day of accountability. Might we live with eternity always before our eyes? When Jesus told this parable, He stood at a crossroads. In a day or so, He was going to enter Jerusalem and go straight to the cross. This parable brings you and me to a crossroads. You and I have a date with eternity. And all we have right now is the little hyphen in between. What will we do with the time that the Lord has given to us? What will we do with it? How will we serve Him now? Jonathan Edwards, the venerable and godly pastor in the 18th century, used to carry a little prism in his pocket. And he occasionally would pull it out and hold it up to the light and peer through it to remind himself that he was made for eternity and that someday he would stand in the glorious presence of God. How often do you meditate or think about the life to come? Are we so preoccupied with this life and busyness and responsibilities that we let the eternal values of the life to come slip? I think um, Dr. Young has quoted this on Wednesday. I know he quoted it on Sunday. The staff just read through Mere Christianity. I'll close with this quote because I think it's a great quote from C.S. Lewis. If you aim at earth, you miss heaven. But if you aim at heaven, you obtain heaven and earth is thrown in. You may have heard this statement as well. Some people are so heavenly minded, they're no earthly good. I don't think that would be an assessment of my generation. I think my generation would have this assessment. We're so earthly minded, we're no heavenly good. 
And this parable calls us to renewed values of using the opportunities that are before us today with an idea we're going to give an account for them tomorrow. Father, we recognize that we are time-bound creatures and that we are busily engaged in varied responsibilities that often overwhelm our hearts. But may we not be governed by the shallow hopelessness of a fallen and failing world that sees this life as all there is. May whatever arena we're in, a father, a mother, a husband, a wife, a business person, an educator, a student, might we recognize that you've given us unique gifts, unique opportunities, and those are to be invested wisely toward an eternally redemptive end. We pray that these, uh, these words might sink into our hearts and bear much fruit to the praise of Christ and his glory alone. And in his name we ask it. Amen.